0: Remember, I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Huh? i
1: was tired of hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention
0: to that man behind the curtain. Did you tell me you built
1: the time machine? What a glorious? This is the Show. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hello
1: there, children.
3: Hey,
2: hey, kids. <laughs>
3: Like me because
2: I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman
3: and
1: Matthew Sennett.
4: Not that there's
3: anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chip stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah.
5: Monday, March 31st. Happy spring! And welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of the young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My lovely co-host, Annie Goodman, stuck in an underground, undisclosed location bunker with Dick Cheney tonight. We are your hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show. All right, it's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40. Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny
4: Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on StupidCancerShow.org.
5: We got a great show for you tonight. Episode 302, Social Media and Big Pharma, What's the Deal? So join us for a fierce conversation with my friend, health economist Jane Khan. She's a blogger at Health Populi, founder of Healthcare DIY, about the role of social media and big pharma, how it affects you, the cancer patient, survivor advocate, caregiver. Tune in to find out tonight, Survivor's Spotlight on Greg Greg Rapone.
3: And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at ChemoDeck. So send me your questions and feedback at any time with the hashtag SCRadio.
5: All right. A little self-ingratiating applause. Yeah.
2: I got through that pretty quickly.
5: Good evening. Good evening.
2: Good evening. Hi, Jane. Hello, friends.
5: We love having in-studio live guests.
6: Yes. I am so happy to be here live in person in this cool Tribeca studio. She
5: flew in all the way from Philly. I
6: did. So worth it. Yes.
5: Well, we're really thrilled to have... We we love live people anyway, Mm. but this is extra special to have you here. I love being alive
6: and I love being live.
5: There you go. (laughs) So we got some cool news to update you guys with since last week. A couple of big events were going on. Uh, Maureen, you took the uh, train up to Boston?
3: I did. I went up to Dana-Farber. They had their 11th annual Young Adult Cancer Conference. It's a long time they've been doing that. It was really great. Um, So I got to meet a lot of survivors up there in that area, which was really great. A lot of people who are coming to OMG, a lot who are interested in coming to New York for OMG East. Um, They had a lot of really good sessions going on. How many people? uh, Probably, I don't know, 100, 150. That's amazing turnout. I would double-check with them. That's but a really good term. Yeah, it was really good to go up there for so the day up there.
5: Most people were local. Most people came. Yeah, most
3: were local. A lot of them seemed to be patients at Dana-Farber or in that area. Apparently, Mount Sinai is just right down the street from there. Yeah, yeah. Everything is kind of in that little... And section. Mass
5: General, too.
3: Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. For them. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's mostly local. Who were mostly Who were the speakers? Uh, that's a great question. The, the keynote was a writer, a blogger, uh, and then they had a whole bunch of different speakers. A lot of them were social workers and representatives from the hospital, uh, just talking about like programs and ways
1: to do
3: cancer care. Yeah, I certainly did.
5: Our booth was well trafficked.
3: It was, yeah. It was one of three tables there.
5: Oh, so easily. <laughs> yes, right <laughs> in the middle. <laughs>
3: Gave away a lot of pens. It was really good. Awesome. Yeah.
5: Well, good for you. Thanks for going up there for us. Sure thing. And Maureen, you were trekking up alley. Sorry. Allie was trekking halfway across the country to uh, Wyoming. Casper,
2: Wyoming.
5: Where is that, by the way?
2: It is in the middle of the state of, of Wyoming, right which is north of Colorado.
5: What else is it? Like, like Jackson Hall's in Wyoming and Cheyenne's in Wyoming. Che-
2: Cheyenne is south. East, right right, right afro- in, on top of Colorado, and then uh, Jackson Hole is to the West.
5: So what brought about this? Oh, first of all, it was Stupid Cancer Boot Camp, one of the our amazing regional partnership models with uh, local cancer centers. What was the Cancer Center?
2: It, was, it wasn't a cancer center. It is the Wyoming Cancer Control Consortium.
5: Oh, so it's a big deal. It's they a write. big
2: deal. They came to OMG Vegas. In 2012 and 2013, they okay. sent several people there last year, three or four uh, survivors and staff, and they loved it so much that they decided they wanted to do like a mini OMG. That's Jessica, right? Jessica Perez. Yeah. So She reached out to me and um, we put, put the event on. They had a, uh, a planning committee and they had some great speakers and we had over 50 people.
5: That's amazing.
2: Which is just amazing. And not all of them are local. Some people flew in from other states? People drove. So there were oh. people that drove from Colorado, which is like five hours, and then people from the west part of the state. Um, and, and, you know, it was just amazing because Wyoming is so spread out that Casper is a pretty small town. I mean, the airport was one of the smallest I think I've ever been in. How big was the plane, by the way? Um, eight rows. Four across. Okay. Big, well, enough to,
5: big enough to get over the
4: mountain. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it, was, it was pretty rocky. Wow. Uh, very turbulent.
5: Wow. Yeah, okay. But overall success.
2: But overall a huge success, and I think um, they're going to be wanting to do it in the future. We did give away one scholarship for a survivor and a caregiver to go to OMG. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. But, I mean,
5: these two events speak to what we were discussing before the show and the overall narrative, which is that the young adult population – we should meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. And that local, if they're willing to drive a, a couple of hours to get to a place, that's so much more exciting and engaging. It doesn't have to be three days. And, I mean, I went to the Boston event before even Steps for Living was invented, like back in 2003. I went there in like '04, like the first year. And I met Sam Eisenstein, and, and I met uh, um, Aaron Zammett-Ruddy. These names are throwing around from the old brat Pack of, of when things were getting started. And I really commend them. They've done an amazing job curating that, and, and every year it's a big deal.
2: I just think it's amazing that I never would have thought to put an event in a rural community. Right. But they came to us, and that is the model that we love. Yeah. Um, and I encourage other people in rural communities that they can put something on too, and we're happy to help.
5: Speaking of rural communities, I was in Avon, Colorado. Three miles west of Vail, Colorado, at 11,000 feet in the air.
2: One of my favorite places.
5: Ah, God. I, I don't think I can ever deal with altitude like that. I've never had that before. So funny. if I
2: move there, that guarantees you won't come to see me, right? No,
5: I'll come to Can I, I move, Denver? move there, too? <laughs> <laughs> We're all climbing
2: up on the mountains and becoming hermits. Yeah. I'm going to live on a 14,000.
5: Um, no, I can deal with Denver. Denver's 5,000. But 12,000, that's like... Great. Yeah. Anyway, I went to the First Descent Ball, their annual gala. Had about three to 400 people. You've been, Allie. So you I know went it.
2: last year. Yeah.
5: And um, I didn't know you had to buy a hat, so I wore a hat. And uh, I went with Jen Murstrup, the CEO of the Young Survival Coalition. She was my wingman. And we went in solidarity as two CEOs of brother-sister major nonprofits in the United Space, the Sport FD. And we were really blown away. It was a really exceptional event. And w- outside of it being in Avon, it might as well have been in Manhattan. Ritzy... And delicious and full of intelligent, brilliant young minds and and swanky and hip and whatever. You do
2: know that Vale and Avon is pretty swanky and hip, right?
5: Well, I wasn't expecting there to be like no boomers. Like there wasn't a single person like over 65 in that room. It was amazing that it was such a young, hip community. And like it's only 50 were actual at the alum survivors. The rest were just friends and volunteers and supporters and sponsors and it was really high energy. The auction had like, was, the auction was crazy. Like, like a, like a week-long trip with a private plane to some thing in Montana with a free, you have your ranch, 25-acre ranch for yourself for a week, yeah. Like, and it sold for like 10 grand. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: One of my friends designed a, or customized a guitar and painted it with um, First defense logo on it, and it went for over $1,000, so it supported one young adult to go to camp.
5: And that's the thing. All right, so I, li- I, like, I like everything about it. And, and anyone listening that does not know about First Ascent, First Ascent is the nation's premier uh, adventure retreat excursion nonprofit for young adults affected by cancer. So you could have a week hiking in the Rockies or um, kayaking down the Colorado or surfing in Idaho or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, you have to surf in Idaho. Yeah.
2: Uh, um, Try southern California.
5: Exactly. Where the water is. Right where the water is. Surfing in potato sack. (laughs) (laughs) It's a 3 of potato sack. FD potato sack raisin, I hope. And uh, they've been around since 1997. This is their seventh annual FD ball. They serve thousands of people a year. Their waiting list is thousands of people deep. Um, And I never went. You went, Allie. Um, And it was life-changing. Truly life-changing.
2: Truly life-changing. I went two times now, my first offense one and first offense two, and I'm going on another, um, what's called FDX this summer, but when I went, I was pretty much, that's when I was sitting around waiting to die, and I felt like I couldn't do anything enjoy, joy, to be joyful in life, and I went there and I realized that I'm not a burden, it didn't matter how sick I was, I could still do things. And uh, I came back ready to start living again. And that's right around the time that you called me.
5: And then it all ended.
2: And and then she stopped living. And then I gave my life. Just stupid cancer. Yeah. kind of like I almost said gave my life to Christ.
1: That's your soul.
2: That's almost how it is, yeah. yeah. We have a whole system with soaking and water yeah. and
3: hoods and I, think, I
1: thought it was whiskey I and baptized, I, yeah, I baptized in the Hudson. <laughs> <laughs>
5: but yeah, so uh, kudos to um Brad Ludden who made came back and made his appearance and transitioned to Ryan O'Donnell here, the new uh CEO and A E uh, D. firstdescent.org, amazing group, amazing conference. So three big events this weekend. And Kenny was home.
2: I don't want to tender. hear it. <laughs> He's only home for a couple but we're, more yeah, days. Right, right. Kenny off. Where are you going, Kenny?
4: Uh, I'm going to Vegas before us.
3: Taking the long way.
4: Yeah, the long run to Vegas on the stupid cancer road trip.
5: Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll rattle off the cities.
3: Yeah.
1: In,
5: in a few moments. And before we get to Greg, um, do you want to make a mention, Maureen, about the GBL Award?
3: Yes, and about baseball season. Good try. Yes, okay. um, yes the Get Busy Living Award voting just ended for the Get Busy Living Award. We had over seventeen hundred people cast votes. We're very excited. We know who the winner is, but you don't. Um, so that will be announced at OMG on Saturday, and the winner will get a dream day from the IMG Foundation. We're very excited about that.
5: Amazing, it. amazing stuff. So okay, well with that, it is time to kick off our show with our first guest. Really happy to have this guy on the show met him just a couple of weeks ago out in uh, Washington State. He's going to tell me if I pronounce his name wrong. Uh, Greg, uh, Greg Rapone is a three-time young adult survivor who was first diagnosed at the age of two. God, what do you got to do to get diagnosed at two? He recently celebrated his one-year stem cell transplant anniversary from cutaneous t cell lymphoma. His daughter, now 18 months old, was born one day. After he found out he needed the transplant. Talk about a young adult cancer survivorship story. Please welcome Greg Gripone. Greg.
0: Hello. Good you evening, almost I got my name right. right.
5: Was- I am saying it right?
0: You almost got it right. It's Graponi. Graponi.: I should know that. It's like Italian land here in Brooklyn, so I'm s
5: i am apologize. Yeah. I yeah. Italian. No, I no, deal no, it's, with.
0: it's fine. I'll I'll live.
5: <laughs> I'm sure you've been called much worse as I, <laughs> Yes, yes. So, thanks for coming on the show. I mean, it was really interesting to get to know you in the last couple of months, and uh, we always love when people are in Seattle. It's one of our favorite cities, and um, yes. uh, w- would love to have you just recant your, your story. I mean, I can't ask you what it was like to be two years old with cancer, but <laughs> right. we were having these the deep conversations recently about the Consequences of surviving cancer as a, as a child, and what that's like to be a, a young adult having gone through that. So I would love you to talk about how that played into your adolescence, into your school, and and you know getting uh, rediagnosed twice. And, and yeah, it, it's a really important story to be told.
0: Yeah, no, it's you know um, ages ago I, I heard another podcast and it was a it was a joke, but there was um, a guy who said the gift of cancer and. It, in a way, it is because it, it gives you a perspective on life, especially when you're that young. I mean, granted, I'm not going to remember everything when I was two, but you're still forming thoughts and, and, and whatnot at the age of two, and you're surrounded by these adults who are making decisions for you, and you're going through this tough period. So it's obviously going to start forming your core personality. So I think from a very early age, I think I could put things in perspective, um, and so sometimes that did make it hard going, you know, growing up through high school and and college and stuff. And you, I didn't click with a lot of my peer groups because uh, peer pressure just was something that I was impervious to. Which, in the grand scheme of things, now that I'm 34, I really appreciate because I don't look back and think, "Gosh, you know, I shouldn't have picked on that kid in the playground." And whatever. It's like it's like you have empathy for people. And and uh, so yeah, when you go through a tough period like that. So young I think it does start informing you um, and then of course later on when you find out and you're you know 19 I had a uh, luckily it's benign but I had a, a neck tumor <clears throat> that was surgically removed and you know it gives you again gives you perspectives like hey you've done this before you can get through it um, my family has always been great about you know circling <laughs> circling the wagons when they need to and saying okay this is a tough period in our lives but we're gonna get through it um, and then flash forward just a couple of years ago with the, yet another diagnosis of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and it's like, hey, here's another one. <laughs> and We're going to get through that. Right. And unfortunately, this one advanced a little more, and I had to go through the whole stem cell transplant too, which is, you know, yet another layer of, of craziness. Um, but again, you know, we just all circled the wagons and pulled through, and you learn a lot, and you put things in perspective, and you 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 get to step back from your life and say what's important and what's not. So um, I don't wish cancer on anyone, but certainly if you get it, at least at least you can uh, look at your life and, and sort of prioritize what what's important. So, you know, family right now for me is super important. With Like you said, I have an 18-month-old daughter and my wife, who's a, my primary caregiver, who's awesome. And um, so, yeah, so you really appreciate life.
5: Well, I, I really appreciate you. you. Sharing that, and you willingness to be so open about it. You know, we are about young adult cancer, and most people even still that I ask, well, why only young people? Why you exclude other people? And it's not that we're excluding other people, but we're focusing on why it's different to be young with cancer, and and that couldn't be more embodied in the fact that you had to have a transplant, and I assume had to go into some kind of uh, isolation or. Um, some uh, you know, germ-free, germ-warfare-free kind of environment <laughs> right. as soon as your father was born, right? So you're a brand yeah. new dad yeah. and you can't even interact with your baby. Can you talk about what that experience was like?
0: Yeah, no, that that was definitely the toughest part. I mean, I um, the actual transplant, uh, I was in hospital for a little over two weeks and the, the Breyer, her name is Breyer, was simply not allowed in because... She was too young, and it bores me. Plus, the other patients, um, you know, I'm not going to be the guy who's like, "Hey, I got the guy next door sick, and he died." Um, that wouldn't be cool. So, uh, so yeah, for you know, for close to three solid weeks, the best I got was um, a couple of glimpses of her, you know, through a through a glass door, and so it it takes a lot out of you. But um, yeah, you get when you get through that. You just appreciate it more. So the isolation, and even with today's technology, I mean, you know, I, I stacked up on movies and books and getting ready for phone calls and video chats. But, you know, when you're in isolation, it's really tough. And uh, we're so connected nowadays to all of a sudden be like, hey, for a year, you get to take yourself out of society. And for I, I will admit, for a couple days, it was cool because <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm different. I'm 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 doing something that other people aren't doing. But it doesn't take long to realize humans are social creatures and just going out and getting milk you take for granted. And until this, you know, until a year hit, which was a little a little over a month ago, I had to be really careful about that stuff. So luckily now I'm I'm out and about in the world more and you just I just really appreciate getting back out, inserting myself into society. And it's super tough during the transplant for immediate family members slash good friends to truly understand because they really want to help, but your response has to be you can't because at least I had my treatment at dana farber slash Brigham and & Women's, and uh, they're pretty strict, certainly about the first three or four months. We could only have two people come to the house. So my wife was one person, and we kind of cycle through close family members but it's hard for friends and family to keep hearing. I wish you could help, but you can't come over. You know, I had my sister, Amanda, who is uh, my donor. Uh, I have four sisters and luckily she was a perfect match. Um, And, you know, one day she showed up at the door, just being nice and had her kids. And she's like, I have a sniffle. And we're like, I'm sorry, you just can't come in. And it's really hard to look someone in the eye and say, you can't come in. Um, So, you know, just, you just, that is on repeat for a year, and and eventually people hear that so many times that they're, they're not contacting you, not, cause, not out of malice or whatever, but just because, you know, all of a sudden Greg and Amy are the two people who can't do anything, and it's uh, not that they don't understand, but until you live through it, it's it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, unless you have cancer, for instance, you don't know what it's like. So, So, yeah, that's definitely... It's definitely a a very isolating experience by its nature, and uh, you just got to muscle through it. And, again, I'm lucky enough to have a huge support network, uh, and that's great. Uh, And I was able to really step back and take care of myself. I had awesome health concerns, um, and that's been uh, a a godsend because if you don't, you know, I mean, these places won't even treat you because stem cell transplant, you're looking at a million dollars just to get in the door. <laughs> and then after that, it's, uh, it's, um, you know, just expense after expense. So I really feel for the people who have to, you know, do fundraisers and I've never had to do that and stuff. So I highly encourage people to, <laughs> I think today actually is the last day you can sign up for health Um, just make sure, right. unfortunately us young kids are not, we're not invincible and, uh, you either learn that early or you learn it late and it's, it's, it's good to learn right now. So, Please, please make okay, sure let you... Me,
5: uh... let, me, let me hop over to another topic then. Your daughter was born um, one day after you found out you needed to transplant. Was this your first child?
0: Yep, first, first and only. Yep.
5: Okay, so was, was there any conversation in, as a pediatric cancer patient to teenage years to 20-something? Was there any conversation amongst your doctors about fertility and the impact that those treatments had on you as a child?
0: Yeah, you know, that's a great question because you had a show a couple weeks ago I listened to, and it's sort of mind-boggling how physicians don't tackle that issue right off the bat. I don't know if they're embarrassed or they don't know enough or whatever. Um, But it was actually a couple of the nurses where my wife had her uh, baby in Conkin, New Hampshire, who overheard us talking, and, you know, they weren't spying on us or whatever. We, We told them what was going on. And they're like, you really need to bank um, Greg's sperm because after this, you know, definitely, because we didn't think we could have Briar to begin with. I mean, my childhood cancer with non hodgkin lymphoma, I was hit with a lot of, of um, chemo and there was a very small chance that we could even have Briar. So when we had Briar, we're like, Oh my God, we had, we had a kid. Uh, so that was awesome. But we knew that post transplant after another dose of, chemo, and more radiation, and blah, 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 it, it, you know, I'm not going to have another kid, naturally. So, luckily, a couple of nurses pulled us aside and said, do it, and we had been thinking about it, so that, that was the impetus to really do it, so yes, we did bank some in case we want a, a child in the future, but to your point, um, it's surprisingly quiet out there when, it, when there's a young adult with cancer, um, I did a local meetup just a couple weeks ago here, and was amazed to hear that um, this young woman was told by her doctor, don't bother with your eggs yet because they don't last long anyway. And I'm like, what? This is a doctor saying don't bank your eggs? And that's, that's just mind-boggling. So luckily, I, hopefully her first round of chemo won't be super severe and she'll be able to bank them later. Um, but to your point, unfortunately, uh, the young adults have to be the ones that are bringing up the topic and not the other way around. And it really should be, I mean, that should be one of the top things that you check off on the list. Like, have you talked about fertility? Um, and again, I, I'm not sure why that's not something that's just inherently part of the process, but it, it, was, it was something that Amy and I had to pay attention to and do ourselves uh, rather than be, be led down the path.
5: Well, you're right because the show that we did a couple of weeks ago was specifically on. We there was apparently a, an independent audit by a research team about how much progress has been made in, in the, the ma- mandated narrative, which is now a, a man, the standard of care that young adults are are to be made aware of their fertility rights. That at the date of diagnosis, that less than what was it, Maureen? Like less than a third of the hospitals. I think, it was, are not,
3: I think it was like a quarter. Yeah. Was talking we're about actually fertility following and this was the NCI designated hospital Yeah, a big one supposed to be the
5: best. Yeah, that should be actually doing it. So less than 25% of all the NCI designated cancer centers who are supposed to be following the standards of care that they themselves put out, were not having the the, the fertility navigation conversation with their young adults. Let me let me flash forward a bit for Greg for a second. So so when you see your doctors today, are they the you mentioned you were treated at Dana-Farber and Brigham in Boston. Now you're in Washington. Where, where, how do you, uh, how did your health history come into play when you talk to your doctors today? Or are they aware that you had cancer as a child or as a baby and that your health history matters now when you get sick or little things happen to you?
0: Yeah. You know, that's another good question because, uh, some doctors take a, an academic interest in it in the sense that, uh, they understand that I had cancer in the past, but no one stepped back and really said, let's study this. You specifically had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with this chemo t- treatment, blah, blah, blah. So no one, no doctors ever really said yes because you ha- when you were two, this led to CTCL. Uh, and, again, I think that's, that's kind of frustrating as a cancer patient because all cancer patients are really – we're a trove of data, and if that data gets to the right place – that's a good thing, but oftentimes it feels like you're producing this data, but it's not getting into the right database or the right hands or whatever. So unfortunately, I've never really gotten a sense that that doctors are like, okay, let's make this connection. Um, they're certainly, you know, their eyebrows go up when they realize that I've had now, uh, you know, uh, skin patches, melanoma, CTCL, non-Hudgkin's lymphoma. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that for some reason, my body is producing these cancer cells, but what is it? You know, is it does it trace back to the to the chemo drugs that they, they chose? Does it trace back to my genetics? I have had a genetic test um, for a subset of cancer, which I was negative for. But again, you know, that was just kind of a one-off test where one doctor said, "Hey, let's try this out." Um, so there hasn't been like a master database that says, "Okay, let's let's track this," and that's you know, that's really frustrating and. Uh, one statistic that, that your organization always references is how many young adults every year get cancer, and it's over 70,000. I mean, that's a lot of people, and we need to start saying, okay, this subset has this cancer, why are they getting it again, or, or why are they not getting it again, and, you know, what treatments are best? So the long answer to, to your question is um, people have just kind of thrown up their hands and said, yeah, you your body likes to create cancer, but we don't know why. <laughs> so that's my so story. So what is
5: the future like? We have a few minutes left. What is the future like uh, for a three-time young adult survivor of pediatric cancer? Do you have a, a care plan that the doctors know about? I mean, I was diagnosed at 21 with, like, the rarest of brain tumors, so there was no plan because I was a moving target. You yeah. had a fairly standard cancer at two years old, you know, many years ago that is part of protocols. Have you been brought into any type of survivorship care plan, what to be aware of, family risk, how that trickles out, siblings? Is that part of anything that you do today, health body? No,
0: nothing, you know, nothing formal. Uh, there certainly is a treatment plan for my current CTCL, and the good news is I had a biopsy a couple of weeks ago, and that came back clean. So we're, you know, keeping our fingers crossed. I am battling some graft-versus-host stuff, which a lot of people do. Um, post-transplant, and unfortunately mine's escalating to a, to a higher degree. Um, but to answer your specific question, there isn't a formal treatment plan other than, you know, we're, we're watching my graft versus host closely um, or watching any CTCL uh, stuff closely. And because I'm just at a higher risk, I'm obviously, I'm smart. When I go to my primary care physician, when I'm going into my doctor's offices, you know, we're, we're paying extra attention. Um, but there's no there's no handbook unfortunately for me that says, Okay, in three years you're gonna have this exact test and then that or whatever. So it's it's mostly just really being aware that my body unfortunately is more apt apt to uh, to produce some cancer cells or whatever. Um, yeah, so so nothing nothing long term, just more of the, the short term. Let's get through this and, and watch watch what your body's doing.
5: Well, I really can't thank you enough for coming on the show tonight. It's a really important story to be told. And the, 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 the lesser narrative of the young adult movement is the fact that one-third of us had cancer under 18 and that we're now yeah. long-term survivors of being kids. And, you know, like it, the, the running joke is like, oh, you're fine, right? No, you're not fine. You know, right. just because you're, you look good, you know, it doesn't mean you, you are good. And I think right. you, you wear it well and you are really uh, very candid and open, and it's important that, that more people are made aware that the young adult movement is also about all... You know, I was one of them, too. I was 21 in pediatrics, and we're Gerber graduates right now. And, and we matter. Yeah. We have unique issues, yeah. but at the same time, you know, you're in your 20s and 30s now, and we just are glad you're here, and we get it, and you get it, and we're we're family.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate it, and your, your organization is doing the, the right thing to advocate. And I'll plug my blog real quick, because... Um, my, my wife and I are right there, and I think hopefully some of the stuff we share can be um, shared with the, the community. It's, it's countingupfromzero.com, which is a, a play on, on words because at day zero of your transplant, you're you know, kind of reborn or whatever. So countingupfromzero.com, uh, go visit it and type in some keywords if you, uh, if you need a transplant or something, and hopefully some, their, some words of wisdom will be found on that, on that site for you.
1: Well,
5: Greg Raponi, we hope you were able to come out to Vegas. If not, we'll definitely see you at some point in the meetup or boot camp, and we're really, really excited to have you involved in the organization. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, I'm going to do my best to see you in Vegas, so thank you for having me on.
5: All right, Greg Raponi, everybody. Thank you. All right, Kenny, let's uh, let's get to the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
4: Thank you for that excellent segue into the riveting Stupid Cancer news. You're welcome, my love. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. All right, where do we begin?
5: The Stupid Kids of Road Trip has a stop in every state
4: from now on.
1: <laughs>
4: all right, starting Monday night, one week from tonight, New York, Washington, Cleveland, Indianapolis, Chicago, St. Louis, Denver, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, Orange, and Phoenix. And there's also a Stupid Cancer meetup happening in Durham, North Carolina, beyond the Stupid Cancer road trip. Once again, head on over to events.supercancer.org to get some clarity on where and when they will all take place. Good stuff, Kenny.
5: Okay, and speaking of the OMG Summit in Las Vegas, it is still not too late to register to attend the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults in Las Vegas next month, April 24, 5, 6, 7. Join hundreds of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, caregivers for an epic, epic three-and-a-half-day event that will change your life forever. It can be epic. It's going to be epic. Epic epicness of all epicdom. 2014, OMG2014.org to learn more. And don't forget about the OMG Players Club, which is your path to a $600 travel scholarship.
4: Epic will be performed on site. Yes. All right, it's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. We've got all new stuff, including some... Awesome limited edition sunglasses for the summer. Uh, Limited is used loosely in that sentence. Stay warm, even though it's getting warmer. Uh, In a Stupid Cancer hoodie. We really need to work on this. Hey, you're right. Step on over to (laughs) stupidcancerstore.org and be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. Uh, As Matthew would say, it's the eternal winter.
5: Uh, It is the eternal winter. Although it's like 48 now, isn't it? It Maybe it'll be 35. It's eternally spring. Yeah, anyway. And finally, Stupid Cancer is launching a mobile health app this spring called Instapier. It is going to revolutionize cancer support forever, and we want you to get very excited about it. The first platform of its kind that will do automatic anonymous care matching for cancer patients and caregivers, and it's incredibly innovative, and, and again, we, we, we're we really excited with where it's going. Go to instapeer.org to learn more. watch the video, and check out our Indiegogo launch on April 15th. It's epic. uh, (laughs) It is epic. And that is your Stupid Stupid Cancer Cancer News.
4: News. We can be backup singers.
5: Yes. With our harmonies. If we could only sing, the four of us, none of us can sing, right? I can. You can sing? For real?
2: Define sing. Yeah, right. I used to sing in a nightclub in college.
5: Like lounge thing?
2: Like lounge thing. Okay. But don't ask me to do it now. But maybe one day.
5: I was going to say like we'd like the barbershop quartet or something going on. The do op. In any case. I am stoked to reintroduce from the top of the show Jane and Khan, one of my dearest friends in the industry and personally. Uh, her bio from a website that I just stole tonight says, self-described health economist, advisor, communicator, and trend weaver, Jane Tarrison Khan is a go-to source for digital health information with a long and respected career in health, she's been uh, first-hand in ongoing change in the industry and applies her knowledge to being as a writer and consultant. She's the founder of Health Populi and Healthcare DIY. Uh, she just wins awards all the time and speaks everywhere like a woman rocking health and five fierce female health bloggers. Made a million dollars to be here. To yeah, she's on. She's not on the payroll, but uh, yeah, we, we love her. Please welcome to the show, Jane Harrison. Uh Hello, Jane.
2: Hello,
6: Matthew and friends.
5: Yes. No, it's a long time coming. It's been a long time since we're on the show. So much has changed for the better Mm -hmm. in our world. Mm -hmm. Um, The haters still pervade, but we love them anyway. Fewer haters. Fewer haters. I wrote an article. Actually, Kenny, what was the article you taught me about? Love your haters and thrive. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And very important. Because Mm -hmm. now that... Matt's paranoid and everyone on the street
6: hates him. <laughs> no, it's killing with kindness, yes, right? Yeah,
5: exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I wanted to have you here tonight because we are uh, a, a community of angry lobby citizen lobbyists that are not just pissed that we got sick, not just pissed that because we were sick we were underserved, not just because we were underserved and we're hating on our providers and the doctors and the cost of medicine and how it disrupted our lives, but that we feel powerless to do anything about it. Mm
0: -hmm. And
5: through the limited lens of the young adult world, what we've been able to foster change on are things like these guidelines about fertility, these guidelines about age appropriateness, clinical trials, little subtle things. But the elephant in the room is always what do we do about the drug companies? Mm -hmm. Because we have to take their medicine, and we don't get the chance to tell them how we feel and how much would we love to have an audience with them, and there really seems to be a complete disconnect around why we have to be dependent on the doctor to tell us these things, and we should have the right to understand a pharma website about certain things, and they're not written in human language to begin with. And it's really something of, of, of intense interest from this community. That we, we just feel like we have a great voice now for change for ourselves, but how does that factor into what the industry thinks, doesn't think, may think, and you are the queen bee expert in doing this for many, many years, and I, I would just love to have you start off by, why do you do this? <laughs> what, what got you into this? Where's that passion come from that brought you into this career? My
6: passion, well, like everybody at this table, and like Greg on the phone, uh, it had to do with family. So when I was young, about the, uh, the age you were when you were diagnosed, Matthew, Um, my mother was diagnosed with a very rare form of leukemia. This was back in the 70s. And back then for her form, there was nothing to do but massive radiation to the body and um, basically, you know, blood leaching like through blood transfusion. I mean, it was quite medieval, really, what was done back then. So she was supposed to die in six months. She lived for nine years, which was good, and only two bad years at the end. But um, I was a young uh, economics student then at University of Michigan. Uh, go blue. Sad. Sorry, Maureen. Oh, man, yeah. I'm a buckeye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still love you. Um, but long story short, uh, as a young economist, I looked at the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan uh, explanation of benefits for the last two weeks in the hospital. We all know what EOBs are because you've all been patients. And it was hun- uh, over $100,000 back in 1979 for 13 days of end-of-life care that really shouldn't have been spent. She wanted to die sooner, should have been allowed to. We don't do end-of-life care uh, well in this country. But my lesson uh, studying economics was uh, to ask the question, who the heck's paying for this? Because my parents had brilliant Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan insurance, and the only thing they ended up paying for was the television and the phone in the room. So I, being the inquisitive kid that I was, went back to college to learn about health insurance, health planning, and cobbled together a degree in health economics back in 81 to 83, when there really wasn't such a thing. You
5: were a trendsetter. I was early. Yeah.
6: Um, and that's a... That's a branding thing for me. <laughs> I, I tend to be, and I'm a forecaster, so, uh, you know, that's part of my work. Anyway, the long story short is, ever since then, I've had a passion to work with organizations, whether for profit or not for profit, in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, to help drive outcomes, but also figure out how do we do this and save money, to drive quality, save money, and delight the patient with great service. So how do we do Nordstrom? health care for everybody because I'm a strong believer in universal health insurance so as an economist so that was where it came from and to this day my mother's on my shoulder I know that she's driving me and proud of me and uh, you know it it comes back to you you know the longer you're in this field right so that's where it started so as a health economist then uh,
5: I would love you to comment on not really off topic but the Affordable Care Act clearly is a milestone change. Mm-hmm. I mean, for better or for worse, whatever side of the argument you're on, if any side of the argument, uh, how does that help the economic model for younger people um, compared to, like, single-payer or compared to how it's done in other countries?
6: Mm. Well, that's a... that's a The whole of the show, yeah, so. yeah. But, I mean, really, um, you know... Having lived... Uh, in England for three years and working with the NHS when the great Iron Lady Maggie Thatcher was Prime Minister. Right. I understand what living in single-payer Ness is, and you still have two tiers of care there. Everyone is allowed to buy up. Right. Uh, so if you get the Honda, you can buy up to the, oh, I don't know, name your favorite luxury car. Right. Mercedes, Acura, you know, you name it. So um, single-payer is great because everybody's got a GP everybody has an on-ramp to health care uh-huh. everybody but if you want the single room if you want to have your baby in a nicer hospital blah 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 you know you can buy up which is yeah. really the american way in a way In a sense, so we yeah. could do single-payer in this country the argument has been uh in the lobbies of congress the hospital lobby the doctor's lobby and the pharma lobby you will stifle innovation. And the fact of the matter is the U.S. is still the great innovator in healthcare. care for the world. Right. The rest of the world, their prices for health care are much lower than ours, and the rest of the world is uh, doing what we economists called uh, living the free rider problem. They're riding on uh, us, yeah. paying. you remember at Econ 101, riding on Americans paying more. So uh, the great health economist Uwe Reinhardt, who teaches at Princeton, wrote an article Years ago called It's the Prices, Stupid, (laughs) where he discussed why American health care costs are much, much higher than the rest of the world. And a lot of it has to do with the prices are higher because when our doctors make a lot more money, our hospitals, some of them uh, generate a lot of income. Uh, But also we are innovative here and we do experiment a lot. We came up with robotic surgery in this country. We came up with a lot of great things. Uh, But we are at a crossroads now. Because pharma can't make this argument much anymore.
5: Right, exactly. that's what
6: you want to get to, I think.
5: Right, which is the argument that, uh, well, pharma um, got into some conjecturable trouble a couple of years ago by misappropriating or misspending. I don't know the actual details of it completely. But it, basically the regulatory issues in this country got a much stronger, uh, bigger stronghold on what they can and can't do to regulate that. And that was the dawn of when, like, all the TV commercials started coming out.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: When you, I remember growing up, there were no drug commercials on TV, yeah. nothing, nothing. You didn't even know anything. And now, because of that, like, public media, it's taken the idea of them influencing doctors to influencing consumers. Mm-hmm. And now with social media, it's going the other way, where we're influencing everyone else, and they're looking at our trends and how we behave, mm-hmm. and... The Affordable Care Act, people or younger people are buying into it. Today is March 31st. It's the last day to buy in without getting fined. Um, I don't know what the fee is, but you can't sign up again until November unless you get married or get fired or get a new job, right? There are some life uh, qualifications that you can do to get it. But th- this is a major conversation to have between the role of young people now who have insurance, who have to have insurance, who've already had insurance, Who've been kicked off their insurance, mm-hmm. and what is our role in social media as influencers and consumers to pharma, and where are they? What do they think, and how is this all going to work out? Mm-hmm.
6: So um, I was active in the earliest days of uh, AIDS before we talked about HIV, and that was in England, in fact, when uh, now Glaxo, but it used to be called Smith, Klein, Beecham, I remember
1: that. Yeah. had an
6: early drug for AIDS, and. Uh, When I think back to that era of of AIDS activism with um, The Normal Heart, the play, which they're uh, um, um, reprising in New York, which is very exciting. Uh, You can think back, back then, uh, activism was done in the streets. It was done through Paz Magazine, POZ. It was done through um, music and and clubs and guerrilla marketing in clubs, I mean, on streets. Uh, in San Francisco, Miami, New York, um, Chicago. Uh, now, if you think, what if, what if AIDS uh, arose today? Where would the battle be fought? It would be fought in social media. Right. Everything that was done in the streets and in clubs, we can do online now. This is our time mm-hmm. to exert that power, which you, you're doing, your new app will do, Instapeer will help. Um, So the weapons are social media, and they're good weapons uh, because we can fight with facts and with stories like Greg's and all of yours at this table. The poignancy he talked about, and I just tweeted it, when he felt isolated looking through the window in the hospital at his little baby. I mean, the story is powerful. Yeah. Think about the 72,000 stories every year. Yeah that young cancer patients can tell. You unleash those stories in the corridors of C-suites, you know, corporations across the country, um, car companies, financial services companies, and we have talked about this. Yes. Uh, Every family has cancer. Um, But the stories are powerful with social media. And the other power that this community has is that each of us, in the cancer, young cancer community is an N of one, but social media helps us become an N of many. And the N of many is very important when we're thinking of research. So data in clinical trials, in in research, is very powerful. And drug companies are having a hard time populating studies. So an interesting uh, factoid came out in a survey that Accenture, the big uh, consulting firm, did in January on social media and pharma. And I brought some stats to share tonight. But one of the most fascinating numbers, and this is the power that this community has, is two-thirds of patients overall, and these are general patients, anybody who had any illness, not just cancer, said they're willing to provide information on their own health in order to receive information and services from a pharma. So people are willing to say, I will pay my data forward. Right. I will share my intimate details of, of drugs, sex, rock and roll, whatever. Right. Uh, if you, Pharma, engage with me two-thirds. That's a powerful thing.
5: That is very so, – right, so that opens up Pandora's box. Are they ready? Do they understand what that means? What would they actually do with the data? And who is going to be the aggregator of this through trust? Lots of open holes.
6: Huge question, and and this is this large issue in America, um, which is under this umbrella called big data. So big data aren't just health data. They're all data. They're your credit card receipts. They're, you know, it's Snowden and Assange. Right. It's a big thing. And in America, we don't have an overarching national privacy and data control statute the way the European Union does for people who live in the EU. Right. There, there is one law, and that is that each European, anybody who lives in the 20-some countries in the EU, and it changes because, you know, we're looking at a changing Europe right now, um, patients and people own their own data. Right. In this country, that ain't true. Right. And it can vary from state to state. So you know we are the land of the fragmented, right? <laughs> America in so many ways. Patchwork quilt of laws: FDA, FTC, Department of Health and Human Services, um, and other agencies own bits and pieces and regulate bits and pieces of your your and my whole data. And health is is regulated. Health data are regulated by at least four or five other agency, four or five agencies. So um, the question of who aggregates the data today. People like Fair Isaac, the creator of the FICO score, would you believe they have health data on how medications work in people, how, what people fill prescriptions, and who adheres to medication? How does FICO get that? Well, they're very they're very interesting <laughs> and very stealth, but they have a FICO score for medication adherence. Oh my goodness! That health plans utilize. That's terrifying. So your data, friends. <laughs> are in the ether, and you're creating data when you don't even think about you're creating data. So I'm wearing a Jawbone on my wrist now, and I walked like eighteen thousand steps today because I'm in New York City. Yeah. it's a beautiful thing to walk in New York on a beautiful day like today. But um, so I am telling Jawbone, and that, that data goes to Runkeeper and uh, to the health graph. They can I sign a privacy form that says they can take my data wherever they want, right? Because And I am complicit in that, right?
5: So is that part of a user agreement, owning a job on?
6: So when you go on and sign in for the app and you want to track it on their app on your phone, you have to sign off. Most of us don't read those privacy agreements. Most of us don't read HIPAA in the doctor's office because we need to get care that day. Right. So we're quick to sign, want to get in, want to get out. Same thing with user agreements online. People say Google and Facebook are free. They are not
1: free. <laughs> they make
6: a lot of money on your data. Yeah. So they're free up front, but, you know, no such thing as a free lunch is when one of the economists like yeah. that. so I'm a, I'm a pretty big e-commerce nerd,
4: and I recently got back from a conference where they talk about a thing called purple Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. So when you sign on to public Wi-Fi at Macy's, JCPenney's, they're tracking your movements in the store, and they know that you stood in front of your coffee pots for 20 minutes and, and all that good stuff.
6: So you've all heard about the Target breach at Christmas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a great story in in uh, I think it was Information Week, and and I will uh, get the correct, uh, the exact uh, citation to the to this team so they can put it on the website. But Target uh, has cameras all over their stores, and and I mean I I'm a big Target shopper myself. Right. But and have a Target credit card that you know I've been tracking since then with equifax <laughs> yeah because who knows but uh, in any case yeah they know more about you these retail stores know more about you than you know about yourself right and they know why i buy expensive tide and not you know cheap store brand because right. it has to do with my mother using it you know mm-hmm. in my childhood so i mean retailers know a whole lot about you through your credit card slips restaurants so i mean this big data question is important so the, your question is who's aggregating the data Everyone from Fair Isaac to insurance companies, right? Um, but there's no like,
5: but people aren't active. There's no way like I can go and look for it. Because like I said, it's not mine. No. I don't own it.
6: No, it's uh, it's in the it's in data silos.
5: But what would I do with it, place. right? All right, so you are going to drop an eight terabyte hard drive on my desk, right? What do I do with an eight terabyte hard drive? Yeah, it
6: doesn't mean a lot. Uh, your data, heartbeat to heartbeat, step to step all the fast food or healthy food that you eat unless you aggregate that and benchmark it against other people's and get analytics. So you have big data, the bits and the bytes doesn't mean anything until you put it together with other people's data to figure out where are you, you benchmark yourself. And then beyond that, the analytics to say, do this better, you know, in real time, right? you know, and 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 shoot you a coupon on your phone when you're standing in front of, you know, Whole Foods or McDonald's.
1: Um, <laughs> and
6: you get, you know, a $5 off on a salad versus um, a full-priced, you know, Big Mac.
5: Like phone shaming. Anybody <laughs> <You're laughs> phone shame at the minimal. <laughs> yeah.
6: I mean, it, you, it, your GPS in your phone right. um, knows a lot about you. That sure. data can, can be aggregated for good or not so good.
5: So let's talk about then pharma. Pharma is notoriously a little behind on trends, and they're billion-dollar companies, and they don't move very quickly to mm-hmm. keep up with things. Most people who get major diseases that need prescriptions are older, but young people have plenty of chronic issues that they face, too, not just cancer, but type 1 diabetes and and uh, o- obesity and...
2: Um, allergies, you know, asthma. Asthma,
5: depression, anxiety. Like they, It's really like and we're still taking the oncology drugs, but they're, they're prescription nonetheless. How are, or are in general, pharmas trying to connect with younger audiences, of customers?
6: It's starting to happen. Uh, I'm excited uh, to say and happy to say, uh, you know, When we hit hit our recession in October 2008, consumers in America and consumers around the world, we changed our habits. We we started to look for value uh, in what we bought, and we started to look for organizations that represented the values that we had. People really changed their shopping behaviors. So Tom's Shoes, for example, and yes, Whole Foods, Starbucks, whatever, benefited from a branding point of view. Pharma has now hit their recession in the form of what's called the patent cliff.
1: Oh, A lot okay. of
6: the big uh, blockbuster drugs, uh, the, the, the big stat, you know, the big molecule drugs that zillions of people take, are going off patent and going generic. So generics are, are cool because they lower costs for people who pay for drugs, both our employers if, if they sponsor drug plans or those of us who can go to Walmart or Wegmans for a $4 a month prescri- prescription right? or um, a $10 for three months prescription for a generic. That's a beautiful thing yeah. from the consumer point of view. From the pharma point of view, this is not good right? because the blockbusters, which are defined as a drug that generates at least a billion dollars a year, that's what a blockbuster is. You know, the days of the blockbuster drugs of big molecule drugs are – basically receding so the like future lipitor. exactly yeah, yeah. and a lot and lipitor may go over the counter really? uh, very very shortly and is in many european countries by the way wow because it's becoming like a vitamin for a lot of people <laughs> there's so much data on it and, yeah. and fairly low risk mm-hmm. uh in fact the risk is uh for some people if you don't stay on the stat. so i mean right. anyway and and this is all a good thing in, in our healthcare diy parlance like do it yourself we don't we love in front of the pharmacy, yeah. we love to shop. We love to compare. Um, but the dilemma for the pharmaceutical company and, the, and life science companies, biotech, et cetera, is where will innovation come from? It's not from these big molecule drugs. It's from what are called specialty drugs. So oncologics, right, drugs for MS, ALS, Parkinson's. Let's really solve the big problems, people. And because they were so addicted to the quarter-to-quarter reports and and what direct-to-consumer advertising did do, spend a million dollars on the 6 o'clock news, and the next day the prescription shot up because doctors didn't want to deal with people insisting they get a prescription. They would just say, here, take it. Get out of my (laughs) office because I need to see the next patient. So we created, and, and that was particularly problematic for uh, antidepressants, which for many people uh, cause um, suicidal um, ideation. And so uh, that's not a good thing, you know. Anyway, long story short, pharma's at a crossroads uh, where they're looking, um, one, for innovation, and two, to drive people adhering to drugs, meaning to have you, when you get a prescription, fill it, take the drug the way the doctor prescribed it and then uh, refill the drug that's what the industry calls adherence to a drug that's a that's important to a pharma and the way they can promote that build that is through the use of social media and engaging with people where people want to be so engaged. it's like
5: direct retention basically They're like stay on it's our generic but stay on our generic
6: right it's stay on whatever whatever we got that the right. doctor prescribed <clears throat> Right. So the thing is, the pharma isn't trusted. So who's trusted in the health system? The physician, the nurse and the pharmacist. Right. So work with Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Walmart, you know, whatever is the is the pharmacy of choice, which gets overlooked a lot. But in fact, the pharmacy now has food in it. Yeah. And food is health. And food is and then over the counters and people use blueberries for pain and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical industry has to now join this ecosystem that's built around the patient that the patient trusts. The grocery store, the pharmacy, the doctor's office, or pharmaceutical companies will become quite marginal in the minds of of consumers. They're already pretty despised, but if they don't start playing into the value this value discussion of what are you really worth, pharma? Now to cure cancer, you're worth an awful lot. But the thing is, we're not seeing the you know the pipelines coming out of things. Well, all of these the amazing things that I see
5: coming out of like Israel and Japan and mm-hmm. South America, they're not they're like t- small little startup biotechs. Like the yeah. big guys aren't yeah. really innovating, like you said. Mm-hmm. Like we we posted something on the wall that we like last last week that. There's a, a phase one study at Stanford about this molecule that, like, kills every cancer cell, every one of them. Like, it's got 100% efficacy in mice. Nothing has ever happened before. And it's, it's this tiny little science nerd group at Stanford that are doing this. It didn't come from one of the big guns, right? Right. So is, is that a... A side effect of them not keeping up with the times that they're losing out to the free yeah, market like that? It's
6: absolutely the innovation. And you look back to the old IBM and how did Apple disintermediate IBM and, and even Microsoft to a great extent. So, yeah, it's it's the proverbial design, innovate in the garage. you know. So the innovations are coming out of, out of startups and small companies, and that's where wealth will be created in in pharma, they will license the technologies. They will buy the technologies. Very few big companies are innovating anymore. That's the dirty little secret. The R and D is coming from the outside, and they're bringing it. And in they're house. buying them, right? They're license, It's licensing right. it, licensing patents and things like that.
5: Okay, so for our audience, the young adult cancer survivors, patients, caregivers, the community that cares, how is the nonprofit in the healthcare space? Whether it's autism Autism speaks or jdrf or us or whatever what is the role of the patient advocate organization in all of this change like what what can we do either entrepreneurially community development wise programmatically how do we fit into this not just to 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 profit to become sustainable but to deliver more value and, and understand these trends more meaningfully
6: well you are the bridge between the life science companies and the end of one patients. You're the aggregator of, of consumers. The consumer is the patients are the end user of these products. You are trusted. You, that is part of your currency, right, that has a value to the pharmaceutical company. So they can get close to patients, not directly, but through you. So through you, through groups like our friends at WeGo Health, uh, Smart Patients with Ronnie Zeiger, Right? You are the intermediaries who are trusted. So you deliver that big message, right? In a variety of ways. You link people. You can be the source for clinical trial recruitment. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. They need that because no one will go direct to pharma to say, I'll, I'll volunteer. But you can actually help foster studies. And this is the era when people do this, the era of citizen science. People saying I want to pay pay my blood cells forward. Right. And for the next generation, for my peers coming behind me. Right. It's uh another way of putting this I've read it's called uh, data altruism. Wow. I will share my data. I will be altruistic about my data.
5: Not the target spying on you in the laundry department. No. That's different data. That's a
6: little bit different. <laughs> this is I'd like not. to see
5: the data they have on that in that department.
6: <laughs> <laughs> That's a little TMI for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, no, there. But, but this is, I think, your, your opportunity for patient advocacy organizations to corral the patients in the best possible way to, because you can consolidate the voice, right? You are trusted. You are creative. So it's like HIV in the streets or AIDS in the streets uh, 30 years ago, you know. I'm excited for the opportunity. Right. And again,
5: so so that's basically what this comes down to is, is we want our audience to understand that you know that um, as an organization we are inherently disenfranchised, inherently underserved, uh, and we're only six percent of all cancer. But the science that's being developed right now, these innovations, are by young people, mm-hmm. and th- there's been an argument made that all this new research and this data testing and these genomic tests can be done on younger people and it's still applicable to every age group of the chain if everyone's an N of one then why what's the use of like the double blind studies and that's all going to go out the window right yeah,
6: it's really changing fast and that's again a very challenging concept for pharma and life science right changing that model but even though you may only be six or seven percent you could be the loudest right yes because HIV wasn't that big, but you could be loud and proud and get out there, and you tell these stories. I'm telling that is power. That is powerful. That is moving, and it's it's humane.
5: We're going to have to get Kenny some short shorts. Oh, boy. To be loud and proud. (laughs) (laughs) At least just, like, visibly throwing up now. That's okay.
2: (laughs) I don't know that my eyes have ever rolled that far back before.
5: I quit. But, it, but it's a very exciting time, which is why I wanted to have you on the show, because mm-hmm. this is completely relevant to the sustainability of our cause, mm-hmm. of our health, of our wellness. And, you know, I, again, I, I we, we joke that, you know, patient advocates are like, I want to own my data. Where would it go? Would it be on a CD, would, uh, on a cassette tape? Like, how would, I mean, seriously, if it's terabytes of information that, doesn 't matter if it's only yours sitting in the shelf somewhere. What value is it for you to have it unless you have, like you said, the corollary of all the other aggregated you know analytics behind it?
6: The value is in the sharing, the aggregating and the analyzing, and then turning it around and informing you. so the irony, and I had this great interview with a chap called uh, Kit Bradford, who teaches at Brown. He makes up. Uh, kits so you can build your own like jawbone and, and measure your own body. He's a biomechanical engineer, but he's a big data guy. And he said to me a couple days ago, which I talked to him on Saturday. He said, the irony is you start with the N of one, but you amass it with ends of millions. And then it informs the individual. It comes back to you in the most personalized medicine way. Right. So you start with one, you go to the many, then you come back to the one and that's the most meaningful Because it then puts you in this stew with lots of other people, but it has more meaning that way. Right. If it's just one heartbeat at one moment in time, you don't know if that's a healthy heartbeat or a sick heartbeat. You need the continuity. Who's doing this right
5: today? Is anyone doing this right today?
6: In terms of a pharma company?
5: Or any company?
6: In terms of data aggregation and... Providing value to
5: to customers, to patients, like doing exactly what you said, the end of one, two million is back to one. Is anyone doing this yet?
6: No, it's early days yet. We see pilot projects uh, on this, but nothing uh, has been really proven yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's all pretty conceptual and pilot phase. So I'm challenging you all to go out there with the InstaPeer app, with your local uh, boot camps and everything else, start crowdsourcing the concept, and then – get the data together, and go work with a couple of different life science companies because they need this as much as you need this. Right.
5: So, And at the end of the day, like if we're really talking about compliance and quality of life, this is not clinical science. This is our right to – this is the narrative, which is regardless of your chronic disease, you have the right to survive with quality of life mm-hmm. and dignity and be treated appropriately. This is the – so this is, to your point, exactly – what patients want anyway. It's just another way to deliver that and connect dots that no one else is doing.
6: Well, and do it in a better way. We can be more effective. Right. We can be, deliver better outcomes. This is that triple A I I talked about earlier. Deliver better outcomes, delight the patient. And by the way, we will spend less money at the end of the day. Right. We won't be wasting data. We won't be wasting time. We'll be delivering the right thing to the right person at the right time.
5: Well, I don't know if it was you that wrote this, but there was a, like the, the healthy person costs less to the economy, brings in more revenue, gives more productive. So why not be healthier? And why not foster an environment that facilitates healthier people?
6: Yeah. Well, and and it's world known that health drives economic development. An unhealthy nation is not a healthy economy. Right. So it's a a virtuous cycle. Mm -hmm. Everybody wins in this.
5: Yeah. Well, that's good. So you're, you've been blogging on health popular life for a long time. We have about five minutes left. But you've been blogging on health popular life for forever, um, which is great, and 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 you're incredibly influential. What do you think has been the biggest accomplishment that you've you've witnessed, the biggest shift that you've seen in the last couple of years that could make us all proud that there's progress and we could be part of change?
6: The biggest shift is um, consumers, patients demand for transparency people getting real about health, what they're spending and what they're getting for it. So we're seeing fomenting up in very old people, very young people, black, white, Hispanic, Asian people, everybody saying health is my right, I want the information, I want to know who's good, who's not good in terms of a provider because I'm paying more out of pocket. So even though I don't like the fact that um, people can self-ration health care because they're paying more out of pocket, and I don't like when they postpone, people postpone getting care they need because of the money. It is, it is making people wake up to the fact that they are health citizens, which is what they call themselves in Europe. And I think now Americans, people living in the U.S., are saying, I'm a health citizen too. Right. I have rights to my data, to care, to quality care, and not to die in a hospital due to an error. So I think that the rise of the patient, uh, empowered Um, and uh, engaged is the best thing I've seen in the last decade.
5: It's largely because of social media.
6: Social media is the enabler Enabler. for for that. Yeah, it brings people together because if you look at something like uh, what you do or what patients like me has done, a patient with Lou Gehrig's in Boston can connect with a patient in L.A. in the same course of of their disease and trade stories about what, what drugs they're taking and what's working, and, the, and Jose in LA is saying, my friend Hans in Boston has taken double a dose of something and it's helping his tremors. So doctor, you give me double and I'll sign off on any consent you want. But right. people are, so this is this peer-to-peer uh, networking, patient-to-patient care, which is so powerful. Patients informing other patients.
5: I think that's a really great way to end this segment because it's a positive note and we want to have you back. And this is clearly something that we know Our community is very excited about how do we rally for change and make things better for the next us or even us. If if it's for the next us, that's great, but if it helps us too, that's even better. Mm -hmm. So, Jane, thank you so much. Jane is the uh, writer of the – what? Think Health is your –
1: Think
6: Health is the consultancy. That's how I make money.
5: Health Populi. Health
6: Populi is my blog, and Healthcare DIY is the new consumer portal where we're helping people empower themselves.
5: And you have lots of traction on that it, it's, it's really, so healthcarediy.com. Correct. Okay. And you blog at Healthy Health, Thinker.
6: Healthy Thinker is my twi- tweeter, twi- Twitter handle. Yes. Yes.
5: Okay. Thank you so much. James, Tarrant, and Khan. Rockstar. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Allie, Maureen, Kenny, any thoughts on the revolution at hand?
3: We're just speechless. <laughs> Standard speechless. I'll right.
4: popularize my new band name. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Matt's line. You may have it. Thank
6: you.
5: <laughs> it's not For great two
6: thousand million dollars. Yes, exactly.
5: All right, well that's our show. Here it is, our closing sequence.
4: Hello, I'm Kent Brockman. That's
5: not our closing sequence. This is our closing sequence.
6: Prepare to activate.
5: I just went uh, I with it. Rumors <laughs> on the
6: uh,
4: internets.
5: You ever <laughs> seen a grown man naked?
6: And so to all of
5: you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead.
1: Oh, Magoo,
5: you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
4: Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 300-second broadcast. We have as much fun as... I messed this up last week, too. I'll let Jesse go. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Poking me a stick... At Stupid Cancer.
5: I'm proud of myself. Candy, go back to drinking. You need more alcohol. I need a vacation. we are low. I'd like to thank our guests, Greg Grappone and the lovely and talented Jane Saracen Conn. Next week's show begins our OMG 2014 pre-shows. We're going to feature some young and old cancer advocates who will be speaking and exhibiting at our conference and or exhibiting at our conference. Join us as we celebrate the OMG Cancer Summit welcoming executive leadership from three of our nonprofit exhibitors Heather Salazar executive director of Pink Ribbon Girls Mike Randazzo board of directors of Survivor Glam Squad and Terry Arnold founder of the IBC Network Foundation with Survivor Spotlight on the OMG steering committee member the one and only Paul Berman. subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio talk iTunes podcast and blog talk radio Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the Chemo Deck, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny King, Marine Suite, Allie Ward, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at day. Good night, folks.
1: And everybody.